From WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. Welcome. I'm Ben Shockman. And I'm Kelly Kenoyer. Thank you for joining us. On today's show, we're taking a closer look at the public policy side of the pandemic. How and why has messaging changed and what's going on right now? We'll get into it. And we'll look at people who have resisted or ignored that messaging, from politicized anti-maskers to those who just haven't gotten around to getting the jab. And we'll talk to a few who have just recently come around. But first, over the last week or two, we've been asking for your questions, and we're going to tackle the tricky ones. It's easy to find the basic information about the pandemic, case numbers, vaccination rates, all of that is available from federal, state, and local agencies, and it's pretty easy to find. To answer the harder questions, you need an expert. And for us, the go-to guy is Dr. Paul Kamitska, chief epidemiologist from New Hanover Regional Medical Center and an infectious disease physician with Wilmington Health. Dr. Kamitska, thank you so much for joining us. Sure. First up, we got a lot of questions about the Delta variant, which has been hitting younger patients and hitting them harder, apparently. Health experts say that this more contagious version has been driving the latest wave. But how much more contagious is it? Uh, Unfortunately, with the Delta variant, it is so contagious that for every person who gets infected, an average of eight or nine other people will get infected. And so anybody who is not masking when they are in an indoor environment is just inviting infection. Uh, this is this Delta variant is as uh, contagious as chickenpox. Of course, we've also seen questions on social media from honest curiosity to conspiracy theories asking, how do we really know it's actually Delta causing the latest cases? That's another very good question, because by doing a COVID test, you won't know. So what's done, uh, the, the, the confirmation of an isolate as Delta requires that you actually do genetic sequencing of the viral isolate. And that's only done on a subpopulation of viruses that are prevalent. And when that's done, uh, what we've been seeing consistently, and this is not just here, this is also everywhere else Delta has been, including the UK. But for example, uh, the latest statistic in terms of the sequencing data is that 93% of the current COVID isolates are Delta. Based on how it's behaving, I would say that is uh, probably accurate. The vast majority of our isolates are Delta, as reflected in the very sharp increase in cases that we've seen recently. And also consistent with that is the largest increases are in the states that have the least vaccinated people. And as the name suggests, Delta isn't the first mutation to come along. Could there be new ones down the line? The answer is yes. Uh, because the way new mutations arise, the way new variants such as Delta arise, is from people getting infected. Mutations only arise when new people, uh, new cases arise, so that in the process of the virus replicating itself in a new host, mutations inevitably arise. It's just a random process. And then over time, mutations that Uh, make it easier for the virus to adapt to and infect humans, then become dominant. And that's what happened with Delta, for example. Okay, here's a potentially controversial one. Adverse effects and even deaths from the vaccine. We've had several questions about VAERS, that's the Vaccine Adverse Effects Reporting System. Some listeners pointed out that there have been over 6,000 deaths and many more illnesses reported by patients after taking the vaccine, but we don't hear too much about it on the news. So what is the real risk factor here? Um, The real risk is extraordinarily small. 
Uh, and I think the key point is for anybody not vaccinated, if you are not vaccinated now, and also uh, don't mask and distance every time you go out of your house, you're basically destined to get COVID. It's not an issue of if you'll get COVID, it's a matter of when. The Delta variant is so uh, contagious that that unfortunately is the case now. So your risk of anything adverse happening is so much greater if you're not vaccinated than if, if you're vaccinated that any potential vaccine adverse reactions become trivial. They're so dwarfed by the adverse consequences that would happen if you get COVID. As an example, with the Pfizer vaccine, uh, there have been some cases of myocarditis, so that's inflammation of the heart. But if you do the calculation, your risk of getting severe, potentially severe myocarditis from getting COVID is 342 times higher than the risk of getting myocarditis from the vaccine. And the vast majority of the myocarditis from the vaccine uh, has been mild and self-limited. Put another way, you're, uh, with a Pfizer vaccine, for example, your risk of a severe allergic reaction, uh, say, let's say it's five per million, but that is still 50 times lower than if you are given penicillin, say, for sore, uh, strep throat, your risk of getting a severe allergic reaction from the penicillin is 50 times higher than your risk of an allergic reaction from the vaccine. Here's a different concern that we've heard that the mRNA vaccine will change people's DNA. Is that a real possibility? Yeah, we get this question a lot. And uh, the answer is biologically, we don't think that's possible. Uh, the mRNA vaccines never make it into the nucleus of our cells. They stay in the cytoplasm and our DNA is in the nucleus. And so messenger RNA is basically the little snippet of genetic information which our own amino acids bind to, uh, to make protein. Uh, and the mRNA is uh, very short-lived. The, uh, and this is mRNA that's produced in the laboratory. And it stays in the cytoplasm and then disintegrates. And so it is biologically uh, implausible. Uh, we don't think it happens, that it could even uh, affect our DNA. And the other question that often comes up is uh, for women who are concerned that it may affect fertility going forward. And again, we think that is uh, uh, highly, highly implausible and there is zero evidence to support it. Uh, this contention was generated, so, so far as I know, by a German physician uh, who is way out of the mainstream along with a disgruntled former vaccine manufacturing employee. They put it on Facebook, it went viral, uh, but there is zero data to support their contention. Uh, so I think we can take that totally off the table. That will not happen. In more general terms, we hear a lot of variations on the theme, we are the vaccine trial. So people that are concerned that there hasn't been enough time to see what the long-term effects of the vaccine are. And I'll tell you, there has never been any pharmaceutical product that has been more tried uh, and more scrutinized in history. Uh, and we've had hundreds of millions of doses of the mRNA vaccine given in the United States. And the one thing to bear in mind is that for all of vaccines in history, 
there has never been one of these long-term effects that we didn't already know about within the first six weeks of release. It's now been a year since release with hundreds of millions of doses, and there are no such uh, unforeseen, deep, dark, and dangerous things to, to worry about. So I think we can take that, that also totally off the table. It is not a realistic concern. And again, uh, everything in medicine is a risk-benefit ratio. And the risk from not being infected so far outweighs any even theoretical concern that it becomes an absolute no-brainer. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Newsroom. We're talking to Dr. Paul Kamitska, answering your questions about COVID-19. Shifting gears, we hear from people who are confused about what masks are actually intended to do. Are they protecting us or protecting other people? And has that changed at all with Delta? So with the Delta variant in particular, uh, it was the case with previous variants as well. But it turns out, unless you're vaccinated, uh, and even if you are vaccinated, because the Delta variant is so contagious, the only protection that we have from getting infected when we are out and about is the mask. And yes, the mask is a source uh, is a uh, source control intervention, meaning it will protect you from me uh, more than it will protect me from you. But at the same time, if both of us are masking, we have mutual protection. It's not perfect, but it is darn good, much better than what we had anticipated at the beginning of the pandemic. And again, this is one of those areas where we've we've actually learned something from this pandemic. We've learned that, in fact, masks are much more effective than we ever thought they were. Along those lines, we've heard from plenty of people who are confused about asymptomatic spread and, more recently, whether the vaccinated can spread COVID, specifically the Delta variant. Uh, the reality is with Delta, because it's so contagious, um, it, it also appears that for people, uh, even those who are vaccinated, the amount of virus in our respiratory secretions uh, is comparable uh, to if we don't have uh, vaccine protection. So let me ask this the way one of our listeners put it. Can vaccinated people be typhoid Marys? Can vaccinated people be typhoid Marys? Well, I'll tell you, uh, you know, uh, yes, uh, potentially, uh, if the vaccinated person doesn't pay attention to the second major intervention that we've discussed. If they don't mask and crowd around with other people who are not masking, they could get infected with COVID. They're much less likely to be, uh, you know, severely sick, but they can still transmit for that subgroup of people who have been vaccinated, there's a potential that they can participate uh, in the process of spreading the virus. Many vaccinated people that I see also understand the importance of masking. And if you are vaccinated and you are masking, then you are highly unlikely to be a, a vehicle for transmitting this virus. One thing we've heard from people who haven't gotten the shot is that they've already had COVID and have natural antibodies. Is that a viable reason not to get vaccinated? So actually, no, it's not. Uh, and the data increasingly shows that it's not a viable uh, way to think about it. It turns out, uh, and this is somewhat surprising, that the level of protection you get from the vaccines is actually better than having had COVID before. And there was some data out of the state of Kentucky uh, a week or two ago, which looked at people who had COVID uh, last summer and fall 
and then looked at uh, whether um, they developed reinfection with COVID uh, this past spring, uh, and then stratified uh, to two groups whether they had received the vaccine after they had COVID or not. And the result was that you were 2.4 times more likely to be reinfected with COVID uh, if you had not gotten vaccinated after having had a previous episode, episode of COVID. So even if you've had COVID in the past, you really must get vaccinated to enjoy the level of protection that, that, uh, that you need to be able to resist this virus. Speaking of people who have had COVID-19, we're starting to see more questions about so-called long COVID cases. Have you seen these cases? And if so, what are they like? Yes, we've had a, a fair amount. A quarter to a third of people who get COVID may experience long symptoms, most commonly things like fatigue, brain fog, and people out of work for two months after they get sick is not an unusual finding. And so this is absolutely not a virus that you want to get. We see long COVID that can have, you know, really sometimes very long-term effects. Uh, Patients who remain on oxygen for over a year after their illness. We've seen on a number of conservative media outlets variations on a theme that COVID-19 can be prophylactically prevented or easily treated with things like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. Is there any truth to this or is, is this just bunkum? Yes, it, it is. The, the, the fact of the matter is we don't know how to treat COVID. We don't have good tools to treat COVID. This is in sharp contrast to the fact that we have fantastic vaccines to prevent COVID. The major thing in our arsenal is prevention here. Once you get COVID, there are very few treatments that are effective. And if a patient happens to tragically get severely affected, we have precious little that we can offer uh, other than supportive care. In terms of hydroxychloroquine, uh, there's quite good evidence now that it does not work. In terms of ivermectin, there's no great data that it does work. And so the position of the Infectious Diseases Society of America is that if you're going to use ivermectin, it must be uh, in the context of a clinical trial so that we can try to get evidence to suggest to support its use. We're really desperately looking for new therapeutics because we just don't have good treatments. But if you take an agent like ivermectin, we ought to be enrolling patients in clinical trials and not just using it willy-nilly because we really don't have good evidence yet uh, or may never that, in fact, it is particularly helpful. Okay, here's our last question. We hear from people who are often genuinely confused about changes in what they're hearing from the CDC, the WHO, and other medical authorities. And some people will point to that as evidence for various conspiracy theories. Maybe people have just forgotten about the scientific method from elementary school. Can you say something about how scientists' understanding of COVID has changed? Well, uh, remember, it wasn't too long ago that most of us or most people living at the time believed that the world was flat. Then further information came to bear by scientific exploration to make it very clear that the Earth is not flat. This is what happens in science. The science is about the quest for the truth. And if you believe something at, t- at, at time A, but then new information, new investigations clearly show that the, that position is incorrect, then we correct that uh, misunderstanding. And science is this perpetual process of correcting misunderstandings and developing new insights. And I think the same thing ha- has happened with regard to public health recommendations with COVID. Initially, 
we didn't quite understand because there just wasn't data out there, for example, about the vital importance of masking. Well, we quickly learned that, in fact, masking is, in fact, very effective and very important. So the message had to change. But by changing the message doesn't mean that at the previous time, the, the person didn't know what they were talking about. It's just that new information arose. Uh, and, and as you, uh, you, know, you allude to, this is just the scientific method. You know, I think that there's a lot of room for improvement in terms of communication to the public. And that's also something that I think the public health community continues to, to learn. But, but the key thing is, is that this is a fast-moving pandemic. We're learn, learning new things every day. For example, the Delta variant. But we're, our understanding of just how contagious this is, is, is uh, causing us to have to revise some of our recommendations because what was true last year is not true now. It's our commitment uh, to make sure that the latest information, the latest accurate information is conveyed. And again, that's just part of the scientific method. All right. Well, on behalf of our listeners and readers who sent in questions and on behalf of the WHQR newsroom, our thanks to Dr. Paul Kamitska. Sure. My pleasure. And with that, Kelly, time for a break? Yep. And when we come back, we'll hear more about the resistance to public policy, whether that's masks or vaccines. And we'll talk to some people who have recently changed their minds. You're listening to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman. And I'm Kelly Knoyer. Please stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman. And I'm Kelly Knoyer. We're talking all things COVID now that Delta has brought the pandemic back with a vengeance. Yeah, look, I'm going to be honest. I really wish we were done with COVID, but it just keeps spreading, mostly through the unvaccinated population. Didn't you do some reporting on how vaccinations had just slowed to a crawl in July? Yeah, I did. Um, Back in April, North Carolina administered nearly 700,000 doses in a single week. It was the week that vaccinations opened up to the entire adult population. But it's been a slow decline since then. And in late June and early July, the state administered less than 100,000 doses a week. That's disappointing. Yeah, public health officials have been really frustrated about it. But with Delta on the rise and infecting younger people, it seems like vaccinations are ticking up again. The past three weeks each saw more than 100,000 people vaccinated, and it appears to be on an upward trend. So I got to ask, who on earth would wait so long and then turn around and get vaccinated? Yeah, I feel like we've been asking that around the newsroom for a couple weeks now. So I decided to go find out. I went out to a brewery to find people who were getting vaccinated. (laughs) A brewery, huh? Yeah, you caught me. Journalism has its perks. But no, there was an actual clinic for COVID-19 vaccines at High Wire Brewing last Friday. It was the third event the county put on at a local brewery. They've been partnering with the Cape Fear Craft Beer Alliance to hold these clinics. They call it a shot in a beer. You get a vaccine and you get a token good for a $6 beer. That's probably the strangest boilermaker I've ever heard of. But let me ask, did it actually help to entice people? Yeah, I mean, it got this guy, Jonathan Ward, to get a shot. I've been kind of pushing it off. I've been wanting to, but I work in, a, in an uh, area where it's like a, a lot of businesses are share the same building. And within that building, some people wear masks and people don't. And I know that as of today or sometime soon, it's going to be required again. But also, we just, in our views and opinions, we feel that it's a good thing that we should do. Is like either we, we always run the mask, but I definitely believe in getting the vaccines. Like I think his wife, Chelsea, also had a hand in convincing him. She got the shot back in December. 
I'm pretty happy that he finally got it. I kind of have been pushing him. I actually got mine Christmas Eve because I'm part of the medical field, so I was part of the first group. So when it finally came ready for him to do it, I was like, hey, are you going to get it? And he's like, eh, I don't know yet. I don't know yet. And so with the spike, I was like, hey, are you going to get it? And he's like, yeah, I'll go. Yeah. <laughs> so why did he put it off so long? I asked him that. <laughs> well, honestly, I was, tra I was traveling a couple, like for three or four weeks. I was out of town. And, but then again, I, I, I can't really say that really stopped me because everyone where I went was wearing masks or vaccinated, I felt like. But yeah, I just, um, more of a personal decision, I wasn't really sure. I was, I was kind of wanting to do more research, honestly, about what the vaccine may or may not do in a long-term you know, effect. It does seem like the beer token helped convince him as well. That's why they went to the brewery instead of to a regular clinic. He said, well, I heard that there was a $100 gift card. I'd rather do that than the beer. And so I looked it up and I was like, I don't see the $100 gift card anywhere in our area. Do you want to go to Whiteville? And he's like, I'll do the beer. <laughs> Chelsea is a funeral director, so she has seen the consequences of COVID firsthand. So I am around the deceased a lot. I actually pick up bodies. So I have picked up people in the COVID unit before. So. Once we were able to get the vaccine, I, I kind of jumped on it. It seems like she managed to convince him, especially since she got the vaccine almost a year ago now and has had no long-term side effects or consequences. I actually know a few people from my high school who also waited until just this week to get it, but it seems like they've been convinced one way or another. And you know, I'm 27, so I'm definitely in that age group that's the least likely to be vaccinated. I think part of the reason the health department started to do these brewery events was to reach my exact demographic. And I mean, who wouldn't want to get a shot done in a fun, laid-back setting instead of in a clinic? It's why they've had so much success in the mall clinic as well. I talked to Diana Vetter-Craft about that. She works for the county and was helping people fill out paperwork to get the vaccine. This is a fun environment. Um, a lot of individuals said that they actually liked that we were here because of it not being the traditional clinic. Um, where it kind of makes people feel a little more uncomfortable. This is more relaxed and they can enjoy themselves and get the vaccine as well. Most folks who were coming over to the little clinic table had come to the brewery specifically to get the shot. So they found out about the event and then came to it. Diana told me she's heard a lot of different reasons why people get the shot. I've actually heard that through some of the different um, outreach events that we do have family who really have been talking to other family members and kind of giving that support and um, letting them know why it's important to get vaccinated. Um, some it's because they have new um, in, uh, infants that are in the house and so they wanted to be able to see the new uh, baby that's in the family and so a lot of pediatricians are certainly recommending new moms to have anyone around the baby to be vaccinated. She also takes the time to answer everyone's questions about the vaccine. The biggest one is definitely about the mRNA vaccine and how it works. With new technology, I think it can be really nerve-wracking for people to roll up their sleeves. That makes sense. And Dr. Paul Kaminska explained that pretty well in the first part of our show. Uh, did Diana say whether there have been more people getting the shot recently? Yeah. So we do see that in all of our sites um, just recently that we have seen uh, more than what we were seeing the last couple of months. Because um, we kind of went at the very beginning, a lot of influx, and then we went down and then we're seeing that spike again. And I do think it is associated with the Delta variant. And I saw proof of that with Jessica Collins, a preschool teacher at Primrose Academy. She just got a new job there and was very excited. That's part of the reason she got the vaccine, too. Jessica Collins, congratulations.
<laughs> yeah, it's always exciting to start a cool new job, as I can attest. Even though work played a role, it was really Delta that convinced her to get it. Well, with the first batch of COVID, I didn't feel like I actually needed it. I was out of the classroom. We were quarantined. I just didn't feel like I needed it. And I didn't feel like it was as bad. It would be as bad for me as it would be for other people. So I just didn't get it. Well, now that the Delta variant came, I kind of changed my mind on that because quite a few people that I know are in the ICU right now with it. Damn, that's that's really rough. It is. But it also is really clear evidence to her that the vaccines work. And she was a tough sell. She actually is an anti-vaxxer, and her children aren't vaccinated at all. Two people that I know, um, one is on a ventilator, one just got admitted today. They're both unvaccinated, and their partners are vaccinated, and they barely had any symptoms. Wow. So the fact that they were unvaxxed and are now in the ICU and their partners are home and fine kind of put it into perspective that it was probably time to get it. One is late 30s and one is mid 40s. Mm -hmm. That's so scary. Healthy individuals as well. And so are you about that age too? I am. I am 40. If it convinces an anti-vaxxer, that is really something. Yeah, but her husband was also there and he wouldn't get the vaccine. And Jessica's oldest kid is 12, but she's not sure whether they'll give them the vaccine. I'm still doing a little bit more research on that. So I don't I don't really know yet. That research is largely on the Internet, but she's also listening to family members in the medical field. And I'll say that although Jessica was really nervous about getting the vaccine, she felt a lot better right after she got it. Yeah. It's in there. Not much you can do about it. <laughs> and she's going to decide on the second dose depending on her reaction to the first one. But it sounds like she wants to get the full dosage before school starts and she's back in the classroom. Interesting. Uh, I'm guessing a lot of people are probably in that situation. All right, so switching gears here, I know that there have been other forms of public pressure to get the unvaccinated to get a dose. Did you figure out whether any of those policies are working? Yeah, I met one woman who still was staunchly opposed to getting the shot, but she rolled up her sleeve anyway and got the J&J vaccine. I hate needles. <laughs> I do too. Oh. That's Lisa Bullard. She was not particularly happy about having the vaccine, but she was happy to get it done in a brewery so she could get a beer afterwards. <laughs> I cannot blame her there. Uh, I still wish I had more information, but I feel like at this point we're kind of being forced to take it. Like, just... You know, like we have a concert we're getting ready to go to and now we have to have the shot or a COVID test. So I just feel like that's the direction it's heading. So I wish I had more time to research, but I just, I don't think it's allowed. <laughs> oh, I remember this. Uh, Live Nation just announced that policy for the new Riverfront Stadium. Yeah, that's right. And that's where she's going to see the concert. She was not keen on getting a COVID test instead. I don't want them sticking stuff up in my brain. <laughs> So honestly, it seems like requiring vaccination in order to do fun events is a successful strategy from a public health standpoint. Right. I've heard about sports stadiums in San Francisco, Las Vegas, New York, all requiring proof of vaccination in order to see a game. And universities have required vaccines in order to attend classes in person, um, at least in other states. Like University of Virginia is requiring the COVID vaccine, but UNC is just requiring testing for unvaccinated students. Yeah, it definitely seems like it's still easily possible to live your life without the vaccine as normal, so long as you don't care about the pandemic, at least. But I think as that changes, the so-called vaccine apathetic will start to get the shot in increasing numbers. Yeah, but there's another population that's, let's just say, more than apathetic. Public health officials call them vaccine hesitant, but for some, I think it goes a lot further than that. Yeah, I think a lot of us have a family member with some unique beliefs about the coronavirus vaccine, and I've been wondering for a long time what can really be done to convince those folks to roll up their sleeves. 
And we're going to get to that. Coming up on the newsroom, we'll hear from public health experts and get some tips on how to talk to your loved ones about the COVID-19 vaccine. And that includes uh, Dr. Michael S. Thompson from UNC Charlotte and Carla Turner, our very own assistant health director here in New Hanover County. All right, that's coming up after the break. You're listening to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman. And I'm Kelly Kenoyer. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm Kelly Kenoyer. I'm here with Carla Turner, the Assistant Health Director for New Hanover County. Welcome, Carla. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I just wanted to start with getting the general statistics that we have for the pandemic. How bad is it right now? So I'm going to go back 12 weeks. So on the week that ended June 3rd, we had reported 56 positive cases of COVID in New Hanover County, meaning during that week, 56 people tested positive who were residents of New Hanover County. The week that ended August 20th, which was last Friday, or August 19th, we had 778 positive cases of COVID reported in New Hanover County. So 778 people tested positive that week. It's concerning. We're kind of skating along this summer. We're in a good spot. We had as few as 26 cases reported in a week, and we were doing our happy dance. And then Delta showed up, and we started seeing a climb. And it was just a little climb, a little uptick, 32 the following week, then 56. And then the week that ended July 15th, we kind of bumped up to 154. You know, we're paying attention. Mm-hmm. This is getting our attention. The following week, 447. You know, it tripled. All of a sudden, it was here. And they pulled off 240 additional positive cases this weekend. So those will most likely be attributed to last week. So we're looking at um, potentially going towards 1,000 cases in a week. We haven't been there in a long time. So how does this compare to when we've had upticks in other parts of the pandemic? Now, last year at this time, we started seeing an uptick as well because we started seeing some increases in our 18 to 24 population. Lots of parties. Lots of people just doing what they just doing what they do, you know. And so we started seeing an uptick, and then that kind of stayed steady. In January, we had some high numbers because the vaccine wasn't still available for everybody. It was really focused at that point in January on healthcare workers, frontline healthcare workers, and then our elderly population. So, but then over time, as the vaccine became more readily available and our um, the rollout from the state got wider and wider, we started seeing our numbers coming down. So how have hospitalizations changed under Delta? Because it sounds like it's a more severe version of the disease. So it's much easier to transmit. And there are some potential more severe symptoms and, you know, outcomes, those types of things. Even though Delta wasn't around when the vaccines were developed, the Delta still responds to the vaccines. The vaccines do give you a level of protection. Now, as far as hospitalizations, the information I have from last week, the hospital had uh, 103 inpatients with COVID. And I believe that is as many as they have ever had or close to the highest number they've had. That is concerning. We had um, Dr. West Paul, who is the chief medical officer for Novant NHRMC, uh, presented at our Board of Health meeting last week. He said the average age of the person hospitalized for COVID in the past was around 63. Last week, the average age was 44. That's concerning. That is concerning. About 90 to maybe 92 percent, 95 percent of those hospitalized are not vaccinated. He says what he's seen, though, of the folks who are vaccinated, that they have much shorter stays, much quicker recovery time, and much less severe symptoms. I wanted to ask about deaths, too, with Mm -hmm. Delta. I've heard more about children ending up in the hospital when that wasn't really a concern early in the pandemic. Who's dying now from COVID? We had actually three more deaths reported today. 
then that would put us at 192. The youngest I have seen is 44. But I want to say we had someone younger than that. But off the top of my head, I can't tell you that for sure. And I'm sorry. Not that, not that anybody should die from this. That's the thing. Nobody should die from this. But the fact that we are seeing it skew younger, that is concerning as well. I recently went to the clinic that you had last Friday. Um, at Highwire? At Highwire, mm-hmm. at the brewery. And um, it seemed like more people were coming in than for previous brewery events. Do you know the exact number? Well, we did 17, which is the most we did. We did by 16. One. By one. We did 16 at Waterline. But we'll take it. That's one extra person that we got vaccinated. And I was talking with Diana Vettercraft, who was our um, emergency, our, our preparedness coordinator at New Hanover County Health and Human Services. And she was saying she also got the opportunity to just do a lot of education with people because people were coming in for vaccinations, but they also were coming in with questions. And so she got the opportunity to sit down and kind of explain things to folks. And that's we feel like education is the first key to compliance, right? I, I, I'm going to comply. I need to know what I'm doing. I need to understand why I'm doing it. I got vaccinated as quickly as I could, not because I just, because everybody else was doing it, because I knew it's what I needed to do from a healthcare standpoint. I also have a special needs child that does not need to be exposed to COVID. And we want to give people the education that they need to make an informed decision. We believe that the science says, shows that vaccination is the key to getting a hold of this pandemic. One of the people who I interviewed at Highwire, uh-huh. she told me she's an anti-vaxxer generally. She has not vaccinated her okay. children. And she went to get the COVID vaccine because she knew two different couples where one was vaccinated and the other wasn't. And they both got COVID. And the spouses both ended up in the hospital. And one of them was on a ventilator. So she mm-hmm. saw firsthand that the vaccine was effective and she went to get it for herself. But her husband didn't. Oh, see, and I and, you know. I can't make people do anything. I don't have the power to make people do anything. I want them to make what I think is the right decision. But that right there speaks to the effectiveness of the vaccine. I had, I don't mind saying, I had Moderna. I had two doses of Moderna. Uh, after my first dose, I felt a little tired. My arm hurt. Um, no big deal. After my second dose, I was like, wow, I think I've been hit by a Mack truck. I was just tired. I had a headache. Never had a fever. Just achy. 18 hours later, it was gone. I will take that any day of the week than being in ICU for three weeks and potentially never seeing my family again. And I know that's gloom and doom, but sometimes you have to see what the other side looks like to realize the decision that you need to make. So I'm, I applaud that, um, that lady, that citizen who got vaccinated. And I hope that her, I hope that her spouse will come around. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. You don't want to orphan your children, no, you know? No, <laughs> I got too much going on. I've got to stay around. That's exactly right. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the sociology of convincing people to get vaccinated. I know that, you know, as a public health expert, as the person who's the face of the county, your version of this is very specific. But I'm wondering, for those of us who just, you know, have an aunt we're worried about, mm-hmm. how should we talk to them about getting the vaccine if they're hesitant or if they're apathetic? I keep going back to the fact that education is key. But you and I both know people who we can educate until the sun goes down and they're still going to stick with how they originally felt. You talked about just anecdotally the, the couples that one was vaccinated and one wasn't and the one who wasn't was very sick. Sometimes I think those stories need to need to come to light. I just keep coming back, Kelly, to put your faith in the science. And when I say the science, I mean credible sources. I fully trust the CDC. I have complete confidence in what they are putting out, and I'm following that. So, But I could go to Google and, and type in, why shouldn't I get vaccinated, and, and have a plethora of places that I can go that would tell me why I shouldn't. So I ask people to go to credible sources. Talk to your physician. Um, hopefully that your physician will advocate for you to get vaccinated. And just know that I've got friends who are pregnant right now, and they were so excited that all of their family finally got vaccinated because then when she has the baby, the family can actually come see the baby because otherwise that may not have been a possibility. What I keep saying 
to anybody who will listen is it's not about me. It's about me doing the right thing to take care of you. I'm not trying to take away your rights. None of that comes into play. I, I just want people to do the right thing and to just step up and do what needs to be done to take care of this community. Because speaking for myself, I'm tired of the mask. I'm tired of the phone calls all day long. I'm still going to come to work. I'm going to do my job because I love what I do. Um, but it's exhausting. And if, if we could just get to a level of vaccination that would give us what we call herd immunity, that would let us return to some semblance of what we had two years ago, that would be amazing. So could but it be you can't see your grandkids until you get vaccinated? I know, I know people I know people who actually have, have told their family members you can't come see the kids until you get vaccinated and have stuck to their guns. I don't think that family member's gotten vaccinated yet, but they're still trying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess that kind of leads me to the public policy version of that, because Live Nation recently decided to not allow people in unless they have a negative COVID test or have been vaccinated. What, what is the idea there? I want to I want to hear a little bit about like the low level public pressure and that strategy well, to get people to take the vaccine. As far as Live Nation goes, first of all, hats off to Live Nation for saying that. I wish they'd start it sooner, but it's their choice to do what they're going to do. But that means that, you know, if I'm a concert goer that has loved going to concerts and I can't do that now, and all of a sudden I can't do that unless I get tested and I'm negative or I can show my vaccination card, that may lead me. Because let me tell you, I've never been tested for COVID. Have you ever been tested for COVID? Yes. It's an uncomfortable thing. If it's done the right way, we say if we didn't make your eyes water, we didn't get the right sample, right? It's so true. I would think after one or two times of doing that, I might be like, hmm. Maybe this vaccine is what I need to do so that I'm not having to do that anymore. So maybe that's it. Just if, if it's going to be uncomfortable or I'm not going to be able to do the things I love to do, then maybe I should just step up and get that vaccine. I have heard the argument, it shouldn't be necessary for me to undergo a medical procedure to do things that I've always been allowed to do. I shouldn't have to undergo a medical procedure to be able to go to a concert. What would you say to that? I would say if undergoing that medical procedure allows, first of all, you to be safe, but also the people around you to be safe, then I think there's nothing wrong with that at all. Hmm. I think, again, I keep coming back to sometimes it's not just about me. It's about the other people around you that you're affecting. So when you're going that medical procedure, first of all, you know you're safe. At least in that point in time, you're not positive for anything. And then you can go enjoy what you want to do, but you're also protecting everybody else around you. That's a, that's a tough one because I definitely feel like it's this idea of personal freedom and liberty. And mm -hmm. I think that's why people chafe against it. But it's it's hard to ask you that question. Well, it is. And and, and again, and, and I totally get that. I totally get that. I don't agree with it, but I get it. I'm, you know, I understand. Um, I guess it could come out the fact that I've doing, been doing public health for 20 years. To me, it just makes sense. The vaccine comes out, you get vaccinated. It's the greater good. And I think that's one of the reasons we're, on, we're, we're put here on this planet is to take care of each other. I, and I'm not going to like quote scripture to you anything, but we're supposed to love our neighbor, right? And what better way to do that than protect ourselves so that we're protecting them? Could you just tell me where in the community people can get vaccinated if they're interested? They can go to pretty much any CVS or Walgreens, uh, Harris Teeter and Publix. Uh, your local physicians practice potentially Wilmington Health does it. All the, ho the hospital-based practices, the New Hanover uh, Regional Practices, Health and Human Services, we have the clinic in our building. So on Mondays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays, you're our shot's available from 8 to 4.30. On Tuesdays, it's available till 6 o'clock in the evening. And then we have our mall clinic. So right now, that's every Tuesday and Thursday from noon to 7. And we are currently in the, in the Belk Swing. I think right beside Foot Locker is where the Limited used to be. And again, you just walk in. We've got National Guard out there that will direct people into where they're supposed to go. And you walk in, you fill out the paperwork, you get your shot, and then you sit down for 15 minutes so we can make sure you're going to do okay with your shot. And then you get up and leave. Does it cost anything or require insurance? No and no. Some practices may be charging an administration fee to your insurance, but in, at uh, Health and Human Services, we are not. 
Carla Turner, thank you so much for your time. This has been a great conversation. I have enjoyed it. Thank you. And I just want to encourage people to, I just like to say, get up, get out, and get vaccinated. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Newsroom from WHQR. I'm Kelly Knoyer, and that was Carla Turner, the Assistant Health Director for New Hanover County. While Carla covered a lot of ground when it comes to convincing the unvaccinated, I figured we could use another perspective. So up next, a conversation with Dr. Michael Thompson, a professor of public health science at UNC Charlotte. Could you tell me a little bit about the educational strategy, broadly speaking, from the public health perspective? Well, the educational strategies sort of work at two different levels. One is what I'll call the uh, macro level in terms of understanding organizational and, and group dynamics. And then we also have to look at the individual, the micro level, about what's going on in families and individual choices. And so there are different theories that we use for looking at both of those levels that have to reinforce one another. And that's where we have some of the challenges right now, because we have this broader political dynamic that's infused itself on top of medical decision-making, which is often very family-centric and individual choices. And so you have some unusual interactions that we don't see in other healthcare kinds of contexts. Can you give me kind of an example of that? You know, early on, there's been a lot of politicization of of vaccines in general. And somehow, for some people, vaccination has become sort of an, an emblem of their political standing independent of what it means for them in terms of the health consequences. One divide that I've heard about from other public health officials is that there's the vaccine apathetic and then the vaccine averse or the vaccine skeptics. Can you kind of tell me about the difference between those categories and some of the different approaches for each of them? Well, if you look at sort of a diffusion of innovation perspective on any any new enterprise, whether it's a new piece of technology, the latest fad fashion or whatever, You have this continuum of the early adopters, the people who are very quickly embracing anything, moving along to those who who wait for the people to try and see if it works better. And then you have the resistant and then the people who would never change. And so you have that continuum. And we saw the same thing with the the vaccine rollout. As soon as available, we have people clamoring for the vaccine lines and we're trying to deal with the, how to deal with the volume. So that was the willing. And then as things got more open further along in the process, it was gentle nudging people who were ready to move but needed to be prodded to now more overt efforts, bribing people in a sense to begin taking vaccines. You're going to see more and more coercive measures to to prod people. So a lot of the schools have adopted mask policies or if you're not vaccinated, you have to be tested, which has its own onerous things for getting a, a nostril swab. And eventually you may see full requirements without exception. So we're moving along that continuum of, of motivating individual behavior and the reflection of our public policy regarding this. There are definitely groups of people who are like, I will never take this no matter what you do to me. I think this is a, a matter of liberty. How do you reach the people who are truly like, even if I can't see my grandkids, I'm not going to do it. Even if I can never go to a concert again, how do you reach those folks? And I think particularly when you get down to those resistant categories, that it becomes very individualized and you need to tailor the messaging. And I think obviously browbeating is not going to work. You know, you can yell at someone all you want. It's not going to really change their opinion. It might make, you, make them more resistant to thinking. You need to get into dialogue to understand what people's objections really are, which may not be what they say they are all the time. And then trying to tailor the messaging and provide information to help people change. And so some of the the best tools for that are finding people who were themselves hesitant, who have made the decision, and they can be stronger advocates. 
finding individuals who are influential for that particular group or addressing that particular reason. So we're seeing more and more door-to-door operations focused on people who just have poor access, but there's this, this more targeted thing looking at communities. And so that you get these bubbles and so the different bubbles end up needing different solutions. And so it's gonna become very individualized as we go through this. We can talk, talk in generalizations a little bit about you know, safety is a concern that some people have, but that it was rushed in that kind of dimensions. And so I think the recent um, a full approval kind of puts that, that to bed or at least provides more evidence uh, mistrust, and some people have mistrust of the government in general. Others have mistrust because of things like Tuskegee and just the medical system itself. Others are concerned about certain biases, or they have confirmation biases, but they're more likely to listen to sources that they believe in. So we talked a little bit about it's become politicized. Your vaccination status is political. How do you mm-hmm. depoliticize something that has already become political? I think by focusing on the information and the science, and I think Part of that goes into this, it seems to be associated with this, this idea about herd immunity, what that actually will mean. But I think part of the politicization is, is, is a broader context that we've seen a, a cultural shift to be much more, I'll, I'll say narcissistic, but much more me-focused. And there's a lot, erosion of the social contract, that sense that we also have this obligation to each other. And so that part of that dimension is lost. That, you know, and particularly in this case, the vaccine prevents you from getting symptomatic COVID and dying. It also helps minimize others getting exposed to that. So you're protecting yourself and you're protecting your neighbor at the same time. And that's where this boundary about what's best for the social good and that part of our social contract that we have. Because these are hazards. If we'd lived by ourselves, it wouldn't matter what other people got, but we don't. And so there's an obligation for being an active member in society. That's something I've kind of thought about with this pandemic a lot. The social contract versus individual liberty, I feel like this is a particularly American Mm -hmm. problem. I don't know that other countries are going to have this much trouble convincing people to get vaccinated for the sake of others, because that's Mm -hmm. not necessarily in our DNA as Americans to think about things beyond our own personal choice. Can, Can you speak to that at all? We have been focusing on that American exceptionalism and individualism so much. And you know, democracy is this constant tension between balancing the rights of the collective good versus the rights of the individual. So the tyranny of the minority versus the tyranny of the majority. And they're kind of in checks and balances. But I think you know, many people feel that their individual rights have been trampled on. And so that's what they're standing up for that without realizing the consequences to themselves for being so self-serving. Is there a point where you think somebody is a lost cause who will never get it? Well, we can never say never. I mean, I think there are people who would be harder, but I think to the extent that we can make those pockets smaller and smaller, the, the consequence to society will become less and less. That's, that's the real challenge of how, how to think about doing this in a way that's very time, time sensitive, that we're seeing, obviously, this inverse relationship between vaccination coverage rates in communities and counties and, and the burden of disease. Where, where there are more vaccinations, there are fewer hospitalizations, there are fewer people in ICUs. It's a clear, you know, we're showing the efficacy of the vaccine. If you could advise the governor of a policy to put in place in order to create the pressures you're talking about to get vaccines taken quickly, what would you want him to put in place? Yeah, this is the, the management of groups. It's, it's a real challenge, I think, in terms of you can be very coercive and put a stick out there. You must get this. And we're starting to see that in some places where you can force people to do that. That will encourage some people, 
but they'll also alienate others even further and to be more resistant. And at what point will people stop cooperating? That if you push too far and in such a way that people want to rebel against that thing, but what is the tipping point? What is the cost to us by not doing that? How many people who are going to be innocently infected and exposed because of the choices of others? And it's one thing for your individual liberty about what what happens in your own home, but what you do affects other people involuntarily. Very similar to the dynamic shift we saw in smoking. When, when you know, Smoking was one thing. It was a smoker's rights perspective. As soon as we learned about the consequences of secondhand smoke, it became a non-smoker's right perspective because you were in, involuntarily forcing risk on others. All politics are local, but all health issues are global. You know, someone could have whatever becomes the lambda or the rho or whatever the next variant is could emerge in some country and then, you know, 24 hours later, it can be 300 places in the world just from people getting on airplanes. You know, the longer we let this, this outbreak go on globally, the odds of another variant that is just as infectious but even more harmful can emerge. And that's what we're really worried about is giving time and energy for something even worse to come about. You know, it's, it's a lottery you don't want to win. You let something, even if it's a rare event, rare events are happening all the time. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. That was Dr. Michael Thompson, a professor of public health at UNC Charlotte. Thanks to our guests, Dr. Paul Kamitska, Assistant Health Director Carla Turner, and Dr. Michael Thompson from UNC Charlotte. And thank you to the staff at Highwire Brewing for letting me run around with a bunch of audio equipment for an evening. Shout out to Jenna Collier and Sarah Carter. Our technical team is Ken Campbell and Jonathan Fresnel, and our editor is Ben Schachman. If you missed part of this program, you can find it at whqr.org, and it will air again this Sunday at 1 p.m., followed by Coastline. You can also now find it as a podcast pretty much everywhere you can find podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Kelly Knoyer. And I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom. Newsroom.